Andrew Womack Ministries presents part three in the Killing Sacred Cows series, a five-part album. This teaching by Andrew is titled, Who's Responsible? We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Today I'm beginning my third teaching on a subject that I've entitled, Killing Sacred Cows. And you know, this title may throw you off, but really this is just talking about the goodness of God. I started by saying that if we understood that God was really a good God, and if we understood how much He loved us, all of our problems would be over. But there's things that have been taught us through religion that negate this goodness of God. And one of those things is that people have been taught that God only loves us and is only pleased with us when we perform correctly, when we do everything right. In other words, we have to be worthy to earn the blessing of God. And I think that this is a real faith killer because the truth is none of us are perfect. None of us do everything right. Some of us may be living closer to what God wants us to do, but the Scripture makes it very clear in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Notice it says we've come short of the glory of God. That's Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the standard of perfection. And none of us have lived up to those things perfectly. God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not just you be the best that you can, and if you are good enough, then uh, you may not be perfect, but you're better than everybody else. You're relative to everyone else. And so if you do the best you can, God will accept you. In a sense, that's what religion has taught, and that is not true. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of those sin uh, is death, Romans six twenty three. It says in James chapter 2, verse 10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you really understood what the Word of God teaches, nobody is worthy of anything. I've had people come to me before and says, you know, I know that it's God's will to heal or whatever their situation is, but I know I'm just not the person I need to be and I, I just don't feel worthy. And you know what? I'll often tell people like that. I'll say, you aren't worthy. And it just shocks them. And immediately they think, so you're criticizing me and thinking, and, and I'm saying, look, none of us are worthy. None of us deserve the things of God. One of the truths that I want to get across is that we don't get what we deserve. We get what we believe and receive through Jesus, not what you deserve. And this has been misunderstood and mistaught so that the vast majority of people it's not that they doubt that God has the ability to move in their life. What they're really doubting is that God will use His ability because they haven't fulfilled some standard. And so what I want to do is to talk about how that God does not move in your life proportional to your holiness, proportional to your goodness. What is God's part? What is your part? You could say it that way. And see, there's a lot of people that are expecting God to move in their life proportional to their performance. They are trying to earn it, and that is wrong. God, by grace, has provided everything. But does that mean that you just sit back then and say, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be, because it's all up to God's grace? No, there is a part that we play, and that's faith. Right here is a verse. Let me start with this verse out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You could say that that salvation that we are saved by is not of ourselves. It had to be totally provided by Jesus for us, and that's an accurate statement. I agree with that 100%. But it's also correct to say that that faith that you used to get saved was not of yourselves. It was a gift of God, not of your own effort. The Bible says in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The truth is that we were so destitute, we were so decimated and destroyed by sin that we couldn't even have faith to believe for salvation if God didn't give us His faith. We had to literally have God give us His faith so that we could even believe the good news about what Jesus has done for us. We can't do it on our own. So it's accurate to say that that faith that you get saved by is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It says over in Romans chapter 3, I believe it's verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Boasting is completely taken away if you understand things properly that I can't believe and receive anything that God hasn't already provided by grace. That's what this verse is saying. Rome, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are you saved through faith. You aren't saved by grace alone. Now, let me just put this in context. Up here in verse 5, it says, Ephesians 2, 5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. And then there's a parenthetical phrase, By grace ye are saved. I'm not saying that it's wrong to say that you're saved by grace, but technically you aren't saved by grace alone because Ephesians 2, 8 says you're saved by grace through faith. Grace is God's part. Grace is what God does for you. It's independent of you. If it, had, if it was dependent upon you in any way that you had to earn it, that you had to do the right things, it wouldn't be grace. The definition of grace is unmerited, unearned, undeserved faith, uh, favor. Now, you could go into a lot more detail. Grace is everything that God is available to us on an unearned, undeserved basis. And you could, you could spend a lot more things. But grace is all about what God has done for us, independent of us. And also, the grace of God is something that came in the beginning through Jesus. It doesn't come in response to you. Let me use this verse out of uh, John chapter 1. And it's talking about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This is He of whom I spake, He that cometh after me is preferred before me. For he was before me, and of his fullness have all we received. And grace for grace, or you could say grace upon grace. And then verse 17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace came by Jesus Christ. That was 2,000 years ago, before you and I were born, before we were existed. Grace is something that God did independent of us, 
prior to our existence, prior to any of our sin, grace was already provided for our sin. Prior to our need, God had already created the supply through Jesus. Grace and truth came through Jesus 2,000 years ago. So when it says that you are saved by grace, that's what God did through Jesus 2,000 years ago. And then faith is not something you do to get God to move. Boy, this is huge what I'm saying. You know, I'm, I, it's easy for me to say these words and sometimes people just pass over this, but I'm wanting to emphasize this and ask you to think about this because this is radically different than what the religious world is teaching today. Religion is basically saying you do this and then God responds to you. But the Bible says that God, by grace, before you were ever born, before you ever sinned or did anything good, before you ever deserved or, or uh, did something to reject God, before any of that, God's grace had already provided things and faith is something you do in response to God's grace. That's huge what I'm saying right here. The religion is teaching, no, you do this, and then God responds to you. The Bible teaches, no, God res uh, responded to the entire situation of sin in the world before you and I even existed. God had already created the supply, and faith is not something we do to get a response from God. But here is a good definition of faith. Faith is your positive response to what God has already done by grace. Again, that's huge. This took me 20 years to figure this out and get to where I can say that. And I know some of you think, well, boy, you're pretty dull. You're just slow. Well, that may be so, but I'm just saying that it took a long time for me to work through my religious indoctrination because I had it ground into me that Faith is what moves God. You do this and then you make God respond. If you will stand strong enough, you can make God move. You might use different terminology, but the concept is something that the vast majority of people believe. And they'll say, faith moves God. I'm wanting you to know God's not the one that needs to move. God has already moved. Before you ever had a problem, He created the supply before you ever had the need. Before you had ever sinned, God had already died and dealt with your sins and forgiven all of your sins. By grace, God has already done everything. He's already moved by grace. God is not going to respond to you. When you get into a situation where you need to be healed, God is not going to all of a sudden come down to the earth and bear stripes on His body and produce healing. It says in 1 Peter 2.24 that by His stripes we were healed. That took place 2,000 years ago in Herod's Judgment Hall where Jesus was whipped and beaten for your healing. You were healed. God had provided healing through Jesus before you and I even existed before you and I even were born, before we ever sinned. God had already died for your sins. He only died for sins one time. He is not dying for people's sins today. The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 10 and other places that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. And that's significant because that 
is describing a position where he's not up working. He's not dying for people's sins. He's not reapplying the blood. He's not working and doing things. Jesus accomplished it while he was here on the earth. He said on the cross, it is finished. It was over. He had done his part. And when he rose from the dead, he is now seated at the Father's right hand. And when people get born again today, Jesus isn't dying for them now and all of a sudden doing something. No, he's anticipated the sins of the entire human race. If the world lasts another thousand years or 10,000 years or whatever, the Lord has anticipated everyone's sins. He's already paid for the sins of the entire human race and he does not have to come back to the earth and die. He does not have to do something new. He's already made the atonement. He's already paid for the sins of the entire world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He's already done it. Grace has already provided everything, and faith doesn't move God. God moved before you and I existed, before our needs existed, before our sins existed. He already has dealt with this, and faith is just our positive response to what God has already done. That's huge what I'm saying. And if you don't understand this, and if you think, no, faith is something I must do, and then if I do enough faith things, if I confess the Word, live holy enough, pay my tithes, go to church, read the Bible, live holy, do all of these things, then God responds to me. Then that's not Bible faith. This is one of the reasons that the goodness of God is not manifesting in your life is because you have tied God's goodness to your goodness. And you think you've got to be good in order to get good. If you do bad, then you get bad. You get rejected, punished, or at the very least ignored. He's not going to answer your prayers. See, that, that is a tradition and a doctrine of man that voids the goodness of God. If you tie God's goodness to your goodness, then you are not going to experience the goodness of God, even if you're better than I am. I know that some of you are really trying hard and you're saying, oh, I'm trying to do everything that the Bible says that I'm supposed to do. Well, that's good. And there are other benefits to that. But when it comes to God, you're always going to be short. And if you try and tie God's goodness to your goodness, you're going to always come up short. Your own conscience will condemn you. But the good news is that God has established a new way to receive, and that's not based on your goodness. It's through putting faith in what Jesus did for you. Faith, it's really incorrect to say that you're saved by faith alone. It's not incorrect to say that you're saved by faith if you put it into its context and understand that that faith is just reaching out and taking the salvation that Jesus has made available. That's not wrong. But technically, you aren't saved by faith alone. You are saved by grace through faith. Your faith doesn't make God do anything. Faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. And there's a balance between these two. This is the reason I have this book entitled Living in the Balance of Grace and Faith. You know, the guy who's our media buyer for us, he's been around the faith message a long time and stuff. And anyway, he's told me that this is actually the signature teaching 
of our ministry. Now, I teach on a lot of different things, but he says this is the core of it. This is what it's doing. I'm kind of bringing the grace group and the faith group together, or building a bridge between them. And it's the balance of grace and faith. You can get out of balance on either side. You know, out where I live, we have dirt roads. They aren't even paved roads. I'm way out in the country. And for drainage, they have a ditch on each side of the road. And, you know, especially like when it's snowy or something and the road is slippery, if you start sliding towards one ditch, there is a tendency to overcorrect and to pull it so far to the other side. And you know what? There's a ditch on that side too. If you want to reach your destination, you can't just avoid this one ditch over here. You got to avoid both ditches. You got to go down the middle, a balance between those two things. And likewise, there are people that get into a ditch over here with the grace of God or a ditch over here about the faith of God. I'm not against either. They're both powerful, important things, but they've got to be balanced. You've got to go right down the middle and live in a balance between grace and faith. And see, this just set me free because I was raised in a group that it was basically you do this and you make God do these things. God responds to us. That is not what the Bible calls faith. That's what the Bible calls works. And God will not be manipulated, controlled, forced into doing anything. You don't need to do it because He is such a good God. He's already anticipated every problem that we could ever have. He's already created the supply before you ever had the need. Before you ever sinned, He had already died for your sins. Forgiveness, everything that you will ever need, healing, prosperity, joy, peace, direction, wisdom, anything that you will ever need was already provided by grace before you ever had the need. And you don't have to do something to get God to respond to you. All you got to do is rest in faith and just by faith respond to what you believe God has already provided. Boy, that is huge, what I'm saying. And then there's people, see, that take the grace of God to such a degree that, well, it's just up to God. It's not you earning anything. They've got a partial revelation, and those people have been touched and set free from this performance-based relationship with God, and they take it to such an extreme that basically it doesn't matter what you do. It's just all the grace of God. That's not true. See, there's a ditch on both sides of this road. You've got to go down the middle. Let me show you a passage over here in Titus chapter 2. And in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Well, what a radical statement. If, all you, if you were to say that you are saved by grace alone, it doesn't matter what you do. It's just totally God's grace. Again, I go back to Ephesians 2.5. It says, by grace are you saved. That's not wrong to, to emphasize that it's the grace of God that provided salvation. But it's wrong if you say you're saved by grace alone, period. That's wrong. Because God's grace that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. If grace alone saved, then every person would be saved because God's grace has appeared unto all men. Did you know that Hitler had God's grace cover his sins? God died for the sins of Hitler. As far as we know, Hitler never responded to what God did in faith. He might have, 
you know, I, I've heard that he claimed to be a Christian, but there, there's no evidence of it in his life. And as far as we know, he never repented uh, before his death. And so uh, I don't believe that he appropriated that salvation, but God made provision for him. It says his grace of God to bring salvation hath appeared to all men. That includes Hitler. That includes Mussolini. That includes anybody you want to mention, Genghis Khan, anybody in history who is notorious for their barbarism and the things that they've done. Jesus died for them. Jesus paid for their sins. And if grace alone saved, then all men would be saved because the grace that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, You are saved by grace through faith. Grace alone doesn't save. It's grace, what God has done for you, independent of you, before you existed, before your need existed. Grace had already made the provision, but faith is your part. Faith is not something you do to get God to move. See, if, that's, if that was what you were thinking, then it's not grace anymore because it's based on you. And the definition of grace, again, you can go into multiple definitions, but it's, at its core, it's simply unearned, undeserved um, favor of God or blessing of God, healing, deliverance, prosperity, whatever. It has to be unearned, undeserved. It has to be independent of you. If there's something you do to qualify for grace through your effort, through some holiness, through some goodness, then it's not grace anymore. You know, over in Romans chapter 11 and verse 6, let me just turn over and read this. It says, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That's kind of wordy, but you know what this is saying? It's either grace or works. It's either what God did for you independent of you without your effort, or it's your effort independent of God's grace. But you can't mix your effort and God's grace. If God does it by grace, then that means that it had zippo, zilch, nada, zero to do with you. You don't earn the grace of God. But does grace alone do everything? See, there's some people that have seen the truth that I'm talking about and emphasizing and from this, they just say, well, I didn't do anything. God loved me because He is love, not because I'm lovely. He provided these things. And so, man, I'm just, yeah, I'm home free. It doesn't matter what I do. That's not right. You don't do anything to earn God's grace. It's grace. It's independent of you. It's not earned. It's not deserved. But you do have to respond to God's grace. Again, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. God's grace paid for the sins of the entire human race, not just those who He knew would accept Him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus has died for the sins of the entire human race. They are all paid for, but... Is everybody saved? Absolutely not. Jesus said there would be more than enter by the broad gate unto destruction than by the narrow gate unto everlasting life and that relatively few people would be saved. But not because their sins weren't paid for. The grace of God that brings salvation has paid for the sins of the entire human race. 
but not everybody's saved because not everybody responds to what God has already done by grace. See, there has to be this balance between grace and faith. You can't just say it's all up to God. In a sense, it's up to God to initiate it. It's up to God to start it. It's up to God to provide it. And he did all of those things independent of us. But does that mean that we have nothing to do? No, we have to respond to God's grace. And that's what the Bible calls faith. The Bible does not call doing certain things, trying to get God to do something. That's not faith. The Bible says that faith is your positive response to God's grace. Faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. If God hasn't already provided it, then your faith can't make it happen. That's a mouthful. That's, that's huge what I just said. And I know that there's people all over the world today that you know God exists. You know that He has the power to solve your situation. And so you are trying to do something to get God to release His power into your life. And you think that that's faith. That's not faith. That's actually what the Bible calls works. It's what the Bible calls legalism. And God is not going to respond to you. You can't make God move in your life. You can't take the Word of God and just somehow or another twist the arm of God and say, I'm going to confess something 500 times. I'm going to live holy. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to pay my tithes. I'm going to do this. And now you, God, have to move. That is totally wrong. And that's the reason that you aren't seeing the blessing of God manifest in your life because that's not Bible faith. That's what the Bible calls works. And the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 3 and many other places, just talk about that this... You know, the only thing that really is offensive to God... I mean, this is a huge statement, and some of you will probably choke on what I'm saying. But he went into the home of uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, these people that he called hypocrites. You know what? He, he loved people. He went into the publicans' homes. He went in... He ministered to the prostitutes, to the people that were rejected by society. Sins, the big sins that the religious world talks about, were not that big of a thing with Jesus because by grace He had already come. He had dealt with those things. But you know the things that Jesus could not tolerate was the sin of self-righteousness. The sin of thinking that I don't need a Savior. I am holy. God, I'm good enough that God's going to respond to me. Those are the people that God just unleashed His wrath upon. Jesus made a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple and stuff like this. He, the, in Matthew chapter 23, boy, he spent an entire chapter saying, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you're whited sepulchers. The sin that God cannot tolerate is not homosexuality, adultery, and on and on and on. You could go, all of those things are bad. But the thing that God cannot tolerate is the person who says, God, I don't need you. I am holy and I have done this and now you have to respond to me. That's the sin that God cannot tolerate. The sin, you know, like in the parable of the uh, publican, and the Pharisee, and they both went to pray at the temple at the same time. 
And the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin and I do all of these things and oh, you've got to be pleased with me. He wasn't going through a Savior. He was his own Savior. His faith was in himself. He was really taken with who he was. In contrast to that, Jesus said that there was a publican, a man who was a liar, a thief, a traitor to the Jewish nation that collaborated with the Romans. And this man, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He just smote his breast and he said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This guy, you know, if you were to just evaluate their holiness, the Pharisee was much holier. He was living a much better life, but he was trusting in himself. He was arrogant. He was proud. This other person was murdering, lying, stealing. He was a traitor to his nation. He was all of these things. And yet God showed mercy. And he said that the publican was the one who went down justified, not the Pharisee. The thing that God can't tolerate is this self-righteousness to where you are trusting in your goodness. And when you sit there, you know, if let me say some things here. I pray that you'll understand. I'm saying this in love. It may sound really hard, but it's all true. But if you are mad at God, like, God, I did this and I prayed and I believed and you didn't do this and you're mad at God, you have exalted your goodness above God's goodness. You're saying, I'm holier than you, God. I'm more righteous than you. You failed. I didn't fail. You failed. That's that self-righteousness. God can't tolerate that. And it all comes because you think that you have fulfilled the requirements. You did this. And now, God, why didn't you respond? The reason He didn't respond is because you weren't trusting in a Savior. You were trusting in yourself. If you got what you deserved, if He was to respond to you the way that you deserved, you'd go to hell. Because all of us are still coming short of the glory of God. If we got what we deserved, we'd go to hell. Praise God for grace and understanding that faith is not something I do where I force God into doing something, but faith is just simply my positive response to what God has already done by grace. You will hear people say, faith moves God. God's not stuck. God's not the one who needs to move. God has already moved. He's anticipated every need that you and I could ever possibly have. And before you and I even existed, He had already died for the forgiveness of our sins. He had already provided physical healing. By His stripes, we were healed. That means it's in the past tense. It's a done deal. Jesus isn't dying for your forgiveness of sins. He's not healing your body today. He's not touching people today. He's already done it. Now, people today are receiving what God has already done. And if you understand what I've been saying the, the first two days of this week, this could help you to understand why it's so easy to get born again and yet so relatively so hard to be healed or to be delivered or to have joy and peace and victory after you're a Christian. It shouldn't be that way, but for most people it is. Many of you who've already received forgiveness of sins and are healed, uh, saved, you're struggling to be healed. There are many of you who know that you're saved, and yet it seemed like salvation was relatively easy to get, but healing, you're just struggling. Why can't I be healed? Why won't I... Why can't I see the prosperity of God in my life? Why can't I see God restore my marriage? And on and on you could go. You got born again relatively easily, but now you're struggling to receive these other things. 
It should be just the opposite. The greatest miracle you will ever receive in your life is the forgiveness of your sins. Think about this. When you got born again, how much had you been fasting and praying and going to church and paying your tithes and living holy and doing everything just right? I guarantee you the scripture says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The majority of people watching this program who know beyond any doubt that you are born again, that your life has been changed, you were not living a godly life prior to your salvation. Some of you had just committed adultery. Some of you had just, you know, gone out and gotten drunk. You've been doing drugs. You had done everything wrong. You didn't have any holiness to lay to your account and yet you received the greatest miracle that you could ever receive, which is the forgiveness of your sins, when you were totally ungodly. How could that happen? It's because salvation was presented to you as an accomplished work, something that was already done 2,000 years ago, and it was completely independent of any holiness or goodness. Matter of fact, if you were condemned thinking, oh, I'm such a sinner, so whoever shared the gospel with you told you that that's the exact person that Jesus came to save. It says in Romans chapter 4 that He came to save the ungodly. Unless you admit and come to a place of acknowledging that you're ungodly, you can't be saved. And so the person that shared the gospel with you somehow or another penetrated any thought that you had that you had to be holy and earn salvation. And instead, they presented it to you as it's a grace gift. God has already done this. Here's, it's like, here's this gift. Are you going to just reach out and take it? Or are you going to feel like somehow or another you have to earn it? And they broke beyond you thinking that you had to be worthy and earn it. And you received salvation as a gift. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Notice he didn't say, but the wage of God is eternal life. No, it's a gift. It's a gift. You can't earn it. And somehow or another, you understood that. And so you put faith in what God had already accomplished by grace. And that's the reason that you were able to receive this huge, this great miracle of salvation is because your faith was in a Savior, not faith in yourself. But... After most people get born again, they go to church, and I'm not against church. I'm a part of the church. I'm for the church, but I'm saying that the church does not always represent things correctly. And many people in church are basically taught that, oh, you got saved by grace, by putting faith in what Jesus did, but now you've got to earn healing, deliverance, prosperity. You got to do this and this and this unless you come to church, unless you pay your tithes, unless you're here every time the doors are open, unless you do this and this and this, God won't answer your prayer. If they would have presented salvation to you that way, you'd have never gotten saved. If they would have said, now, look, you've got to be holy. You've got to quit all of this stuff. You, got to, you can't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. You can't do this and this and this. And if you, if you, unless you do all of these things, God won't save you. If it would have been presented to you that way, you'd have never gotten saved. But see, it was presented that, hey, it's already done. 
And you won't have to do something to get God to save you. God's already done everything that's necessary for your salvation. It's just a matter of are you going to believe and receive or doubt and do without? And because of that, you receive this great gift of salvation. It says in um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. That means if you got saved by putting faith in what Jesus had already done, it was already done, it was already accomplished, how could you doubt that He would do what He's already done? It's already done. And see, because it was presented to you that way, then you just put faith in God's grace, in what He had already accomplished, and you received it. In Colossians 2, 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. That's the way you're supposed to walk in Him. If we would receive healing the same way and say, Father, I don't have to earn healing. I don't have to do anything to be worthy of it. It's a gift. By your stripes I was healed. 1 Peter 2, 24. It's already over. It's already done. Father, thank you that I'm already healed. If I was healed, I am healed. And now I just reach out and take what you have already provided. My faith isn't making you heal me. You've already healed me by grace. My faith is just reaching out and taking what you've already given me. You know, one of the things that helps me to understand this is looking at creation. God created Adam and Eve, and He didn't create them first, even though they were the most important part of His salvation, of His whole creation. We were the crowning jewel we were the reason that He created all of this. But He didn't create us first. He created us at the very end of the six days of creation because it wasn't ready for us yet. If He would have created us first, did you know that it would have been four days before there was sun to give warmth unto us? There was three days, I think it was, until there was ground. We would add the dog paddle, tread water, for three days until there was ground for us to stand upon. He hadn't created the trees yet for us to eat and things like this. He hadn't made things ready. He created us last, not because we were the least important, but because He prepared everything. He anticipated that the climate that we would need. He created all of the air that we would need to breathe. He created everything anticipating every need of the human race. And then He created us at the very end and immediately rested. And we entered into His rest where we didn't have to say, Oh God, I need to breathe. And he said, oh, I forgot. Uh, let me create air for you, oxygen for you to breathe. No, he anticipated that need. And we didn't have to say, oh, God, I'm hungry. And he says, well, I better create something for you to eat. No, he knew we were, would be hungry. And he created all of the food that we would ever need. He created the perfect climate. Not only just the physical necessities, but I mean all of the beauty of this uh, world, all of the animals, all of these things, such variety. He anticipated every need we would ever need physically, emotionally, in every area before we ever need it. Now, did that mean that Adam and Eve just automatically had all of the oxygen? Well, all of the oxygen was there, but you have to breathe. If you were to hold your breath, it's not going to happen unless you breathe. He created all of the food that we'd ever need, but He didn't just intravenously put it into our veins and feed us that somehow or another. We had to reach out and take the fruit. If it was like a banana, you had to take the banana and you had to peel it. There was some effort, but did your work make that banana appear? No, God, by grace, 
had already provided everything, but you have to reach out and take it. See, this is the way that it is. When you get born again, you didn't make Jesus come to this earth and die for you. It's something He did totally independent of you 2,000 years before you existed. He already came. He died for your sins. He made the provision. But did that mean that you're automatically saved? No, you have to reach out and say, Father, I humble myself. I'm going to quit trusting in myself and my own goodness. I'm making Jesus my Savior. I'm receiving relationship with you through your Son, Jesus. And you have to, by faith, reach out and take that salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, but not all men have responded positively. There's some people that just totally ignore it and say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus and God, and they reject the whole concept. And even, you know, they will go to hell, but their sins were paid for. But they go to hell because they refuse that. Then there's other people who believe that God exists. They may even believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But instead of putting their faith in Jesus, they think, I'm holy. I'm good enough. They're the modern day Pharisees that don't trust the Savior. They think that they're so holy. They've paid tithes of mint and anise and cumin and all of these things that they don't need a Savior. God is going to accept them based on their own goodness. And they do a relative goodness compared to other people. You might be better than I am, but the truth is all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? And <laughs> Not me. I guarantee you, we've all sinned and the wages of our sin is death. And there are some people who even acknowledge God and acknowledge Jesus as being the Son of God, but they don't put their faith in Him. They just use Him to make up whatever difference. In other words, I'm not perfect. I haven't made a hundred on my test, but I made a 90 or an 80. I'm relatively good compared to everybody else. And, you know, God, there's nobody perfect, so God has to grade on a curve. He has to just take the top 10% or whatever. Certainly I'm in the top 10%. Certainly God is going to accept me based on my goodness. Nope, that's not the way it works. You either have to make a hundred on your test, which is impossible to do because all of sin comes short of the glory of God. If you make a 99.999, you fail. It's either all or nothing. And if you acknowledge that you've sinned and come short of the glory of God, then all you do is put faith in the grace that God has already extended through Jesus and you receive it as a free gift. And see, that's how you got born again, but Sad to say, after you get born again, people slip back in to thinking that somehow or another, I've got to earn the favor of God. No, you don't earn the favor of God. It is totally the grace of God that provides everything. It's independent of you, but you do have a response. You do have to respond. And faith is how you respond. How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You know, God loves me independent of my Bible study. I don't have to study the Bible in order for God to love me. But I can guarantee you the things that I'm sharing with you, I did not get watching as the stomach turns on television. I had to spend time in the Word of God. I'm not studying the Word, and because I'm reading the Word and doing these things, then God responds to me and says, All right, you've been holy enough you have been studying the Word. Now I'm going to bless you with this. No. 
HE HAS BLESSED ME THROUGH JESUS, INDEPENDENT OF MY BIBLE STUDY, INDEPENDENT OF MY CHURCH ATTENDANCE, INDEPENDENT OF ANYTHING GOOD THAT I'VE EVER DONE. BUT DOES THAT MEAN THAT I JUST NOW AM FREE TO NEVER STUDY THE WORD, TO NEVER GO TO CHURCH? NO, BECAUSE IF I DON'T STUDY THE WORD, FAITH WON'T COME FOR ME TO UNDERSTAND AND TO REACH OUT AND RECEIVE THIS. I DO NOT LIVE HOLY TO CHANGE GOD'S HEART TOWARDS ME. BUT I LIVE HOLY TO CHANGE MY HEART TOWARDS GOD. MY HEART WILL BECOME HARDENED IF I JUST LIVE IN SIN. HEBREWS CHAPTER 3 TALKS ABOUT BEING DECEIVED THROUGH THE DECEITFULNESS OF SIN AND HARDENED THROUGH THE DECEITFULNESS OF SIN. OUR HEART BECOMES INSENSITIVE, COLD, HARDENED TOWARDS GOD IF WE DON'T SEEK HIM. SO I'M SAYING THAT YOU NEED TO SEEK GOD, BUT DON'T DO IT IN ORDER TO GET GOD TO RESPOND TO YOU. YOU SEEK GOD SO THAT YOU CAN RESPOND TO GOD. AND I KNOW THAT THERE'S SOME PEOPLE THINKING, WHAT'S THE DIFFERENCE? EITHER WAY, I'VE GOT TO SEEK GOD. IF YOU DO IT THINKING THAT SOMEHOW OR ANOTHER, GOD, NOW I'VE DONE THIS, YOU OWE ME SOMETHING, THAT'S NOT WORKS. THAT'S SELF-RIGHTEOUSNESS. THAT'S TRUST IN YOUR OWN SELF, AND THAT'S THE VERY THING THAT'LL STOP GOD. SIN WON'T STOP GOD. HOMOSEXUALITY, ADULTERY, LYING, STEALING, MURDER WON'T STOP GOD FROM LOVING YOU, BUT TRUSTING IN YOURSELF AND PROCLAIMING YOUR OWN GOODNESS WILL CUT YOU OFF FROM THE GRACE OF GOD. GRACE HAS TO BE SOMETHING THAT IS INDEPENDENT OF YOU, SOMETHING THAT YOU DIDN'T EARN, THAT YOU DON'T DESERVE. IF IT'S ANYTHING ELSE, IF SOMEHOW OR ANOTHER YOU HAVE TO BE HOLY ENOUGH TO MERIT THIS, THEN IT'S NOT GRACE. IF IT'S GRACE, IT'S UNEARNED, UNDESERVED, INDEPENDENT OF YOU. MAN, THIS IS HUGE WHAT I'M SAYING. AND THIS IS THE THING, I'M TALKING ABOUT THIS TEACHING KILLING SACRED COWS. THIS IS ONE OF THOSE DOCTRINES THAT IS HELD SO PASSIONATELY BY THE VAST MAJORITY OF CHRISTIANS THAT SOMEHOW OR ANOTHER YOU TIE GOD'S GOODNESS TO YOUR GOODNESS. YOU'VE GOT TO EARN IT. YOU'VE GOT TO DESERVE IT. AND THAT IS THE VERY THING THAT IS NEGATING AND STOPPING THE POWER OF GOD IN YOUR LIFE. YOUR SIN, YOUR FAILURES DON'T STOP GOD, BUT YOUR SELF-RIGHTEOUSNESS, YOUR LINKAGE TO GOD'S GOODNESS BY YOUR HOLINESS WILL STOP THE POWER OF GOD. YOU KNOW, IT'S LIKE A CHAIN, AND YOU'VE HEARD THIS SAYING BEFORE THAT the, THE CHAIN IS NO STRONGER THAN ITS WEAKEST LINK. IF YOU LINK GOD'S GOODNESS, HIS HEALING POWER, HIS DELIVERING POWER, HIS PROSPERITY TO YOUR GOODNESS, AND YOU MAKE YOURSELF A LINK IN THAT CHAIN, THEN YOU'RE THE WEAK LINK. THAT WHOLE THING WILL BREAK. YOU'LL NEVER SEE THE THING HOLD. IT'LL NEVER PRODUCE THE POWER OF GOD. YOU'VE GOT TO REMOVE YOURSELF THAT, GOD, IT IS NOT MY GOODNESS. WHEN THE DEVIL COMES TO CONDEMN YOU AND HE SAYS, YOU HAVEN'T DONE THIS AND THIS, THE AVERAGE CHRISTIAN RESPONDS BY SAYING, ALL RIGHT, FATHER, I PROMISE YOU I'M GOING TO START LIVING HOLY. I'LL DO THESE THINGS IF YOU'LL JUST MOVE IN MY LIFE. AND YOU LINK GOD'S PERFORMANCE TO YOUR GOODNESS. THE MOMENT YOU DO THAT, YOU HAVE JUST LOST. BECAUSE I GUARANTEE YOU, YOU ARE NEVER GOING TO MEASURE UP. AND YOUR OWN CONSCIENCE WILL CONDEMN YOU. AND SATAN IS A MASTER AT BEING THE ACCUSER OF THE BROTHER. AND HE WILL COME ALONG AND REMIND YOU OF EVERY ROTTEN THING YOU FAILED TO DO. SO YOU'VE GOT YOUR OWN CONSCIENCE WORKING AGAINST YOU. YOU'VE GOT SATAN WORKING AGAINST YOU. YOU WILL NEVER HAVE THE CONFIDENCE AND THE BOLDNESS IF YOU BASE GOD MOVING IN YOUR LIFE ON YOUR OWN GOODNESS. I'M TELLING YOU, YOU'RE SAVED BY GRACE. THAT'S WHAT GOD HAS DONE INDEPENDENT OF YOU. 
through faith. And faith is not something you do to get a response from God. It is simply your positive response to what God has already accomplished. Boy, these are huge things that I'm saying. You know, the Lord revealed these things to me in a way that I was raised in a church where I got born again at eight years old. But I was taught basically that you had to live holy in order to get God to love you. And I remember my dad died when I was 12 years old. And I, I don't know that anybody told me this, but I interpreted it based on what I'd been taught that the reason my prayers weren't answered and that my dad died was because I just wasn't holy enough. I wasn't doing enough. And so, man, I became a human doing, not a human being. I began to do everything. I, Man, I studied the Word. I have never said a word of profanity in my whole life. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I have been seeking God and living for God, but I fell into the trap of thinking that somehow or another that meant God owed me these things. I was trying to earn God's favor. And on March the 23rd, 1968, God showed up around midnight in a prayer meeting that I was in and just showed me that I could never earn His goodness. He showed me that, you know, I was really smug and compared to everybody else I knew, compared to all of my friends, compared to the people in my church, I was living a holier life than anybody else that I knew. And I was really, really proud of that and really trusting in my own goodness. And God showed up. And I don't have the words to describe this, but I saw the glory of God. I saw the holiness of God, the purity of God. And when I experienced that, relative to people, I might have felt good. But when I saw the glory of God, I guarantee you, I repented in sackcloth and ashes. And I know that there's some people offended by some of the things that I'm saying, and you think, but you don't know how holy I am. You've just never seen the glory of God. If you ever see the true glory of God, I guarantee you, you are not going to feel confident and smug in your ability. And because of this, it just caused me to humble myself and I started realizing, God, how could you love me now that I realize I am not any, I don't deserve anything. And that's how God started teaching me His grace. Man, what I'm saying is huge. God has already done everything. That's grace. Now, faith is just your positive response to what God has already done. Or another way of saying it, faith only appropriates what God has already done by grace. If God hasn't already done it, your faith can't make it happen. That is huge, what I've just said. And this is the reason that so many people today are experiencing frustration is because they have the wrong mindset. Faith is more than just thinking. It's action, but it originates. It comes from the way you think. If you have wrong thinking, you'll have wrong believing. And people have had wrong thinking. They think that what I'm doing now obligates God. I'm forcing God to do this. And that is not faith. That's works. And you are not going to force God into doing anything. Let me use as an example here in Mark chapter 11, verse 24. This is a powerful promise from God. It says, Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Man, that is a strong passage of Scripture. What things soever you desire, 
When you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. That says whatsoever. So does this mean that you can just pray to win the lottery? I can guarantee you there's people watching me who you have prayed and asked God to guide you and give you the right numbers for the lottery so that you can win all of this. I can guarantee you. I can guarantee it that there are people watching this program that you've been praying this. It is not going to happen. You cannot say, well, what it says whatsoever. I want to win the lottery. So God, I'm believing. Give me these numbers. And you go buy a lottery ticket and you do this and you believe that God is somehow or another supernaturally guiding you to win this lottery. You know why that won't work? Because God didn't uh, uh, make in His atonement provisions for you to win the lottery. It's not part of what He's done. That's gambling. And I could show you dozens of scriptures about that. That is not a godly system. God is not going to beat the lottery. It's, you know, it's against the law to give out the lottery numbers and things like this. God's not going to break the law. God's not going to counterfeit United States currency and just put it in your pocket or whatever nation you live in. God is not going to do that. It's against the law. You can't just, you know, I saw a guy on television one time who was selling green strings. And if you put this green string in your wallet, then it'll never be empty. God will create money and put money in there. That can't happen because that's counterfeiting. It's against... You can't use this verse to do that. You know, there was a woman in Arlington, Texas that... Um, that's where I grew up and I knew about this. And she had a little tiny Bible school. Not very many people in it. But anyway, she wanted Kenneth Copeland to be her husband. And you know what? She, uh, she just claimed it based on this verse. They actually had a wedding ceremony where this woman, you know, had a dress and, and the people in her Bible study, they actually had a wedding ceremony. I wasn't there, but there's a friend of mine who told me about all of this. I'm assuming that this was true. And I, I, you know, there was people I knew that did things like this, so I don't doubt that it happened. But anyway, she claimed Kenneth Copeland as her husband she had a wedding ceremony, married him in the spirit. Of course, Kenneth wasn't there. And the way she dealt with this minor problem of Gloria Copeland being married to Kenneth was she just cursed her and commanded Gloria to die and to get out of the way. And then she had this wedding ceremony in the spirit and she was just waiting on Kenneth to be her husband. And I don't know, that's been 30 years or something ago. And I don't even know if this woman is still alive today. I know that Gloria is still alive and Kenneth and Gloria are still married and it didn't come to pass. And did you know that they actually had a banner that said Mark 11, 24, and they were claiming this on the basis of this scripture. Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Why can't you do that? Doesn't it say whatsoever things you desire? Why doesn't that work? The answer to this is real simple. God, by grace, did not provide murder and adultery in His atonement. That didn't come by grace. And so faith doesn't make God do anything. You can't stand here and say, God, whatsoever things I desire, I desire... Uh, you know, to rob a bank and to get away with a million dollars and they will not catch me because I confess it with my mouth and I believe in my heart and I receive and I've got it. You can't do that because God didn't provide robbery and thievery in His atonement. He didn't provide murder and adultery in His atonement. 
Your faith doesn't make God do anything. All faith does is reach out and appropriate what God has already provided by grace. That is huge what I'm saying. And see, this, this would get rid of so much flaky stuff in the body of Christ. People claiming that they're going to get this house and all of these other things. Now, God wants us to prosper and God will meet our need. But for you to sit there and just lust after a $2 million, $5 million home or whatever, you know, it, boy, there's a lot of things I could say about this. God's not against you living multi-million dollar homes. It's really relative to your prosperity. I knew a guy one time who lived in a home that his home was close to a million dollars. I don't know exactly, but this has also been 20 years ago. He probably lives in a home that's multi-million dollars now. But anyway, this guy, he was a pastor of a church, and he lived in this expensive home, and people criticized him for it. But what they didn't understand was that that home equaled about one year worth of his giving. How many of you would like to live in a house that equaled one year's worth of your giving? Let's just say that you give $1,000 a month. Did you know for most people that would only be $12,000 a year? That would not be a very nice house. Most of you live in a house that might be worth 30 years, 40 years, 50 years worth of your giving or whatever. Did you know for this man to live in a house that was $1 million, but that was only one year's worth of his giving? Well, I believe that God looked at that as he was very frugal. He was using his money wisely. God is El Shaddai, not El Cheapo. He doesn't grade things based on what you live in versus what somebody else does. He looks not at how much you have, but how much you have given and a person who gives huge and yet is blessed in a huge way, God sees that as equity. That's just fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there are some people that give very little and yet live in a nice house. And you know what? God sees that as them being much more selfish than this person who lived in a million dollar home. So anyway, the point is, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with you having a multi-million dollar home, but there are some of you who are lusting after things and you're praying and trying to use scriptures like Mark 11:24 to manipulate God. God, I'm confessing whatsoever things I desire. I desire this $100,000 car. And again, there's nothing wrong with you having a $100,000 car. If you are a great giver and if you have given a lot, you can't help but receive a lot. You know, this same guy that I was talking about had this expensive home. I was there when a truck drove up and they unloaded a Corvette. I mean, a fancy Corvette that had two ignitions. I don't understand all of that, but one was just for normal driving, but then you could turn on a second ignition, and man, that thing would move, and somebody, you know, he unloaded this Corvette, and somebody gave it to him with six months' worth of insurance paid already, which I think the insurance was like $6,000 for six months because it was such a hot car. And people criticized this pastor for having that, but he gave away, I've seen him, he bought me about five cars, I think it was, and paid for it. I've seen him buy cars for other people. You can't help but be blessed. 
That guy didn't go out and buy that car. It was a gift to him, and people criticize him. There's nothing wrong with him having that car because he gave so much. When you give like that, you can't help but be blessed. So I am not saying that you can't be blessed, but I'm saying that there are a lot of people that haven't sown, that haven't been patient, they haven't given it time for the harvest to come and stuff like this. They're just trying to take scriptures like this and confess and say, I believe I've got the $100,000 car. I believe I've got a million dollar home. I believe all of these things. And you're trying to manipulate God and you're lusting for things and it's wrong. God did not provide covetousness and greed and stuff like that. The blessings of God, it says, will come upon you and overtake you. You don't have to chase them. You know, God is blessing me just tremendously, but I am not standing here on Mark eleven twenty four and confessing and believing, and oh God, you've got to move, and oh God, you've got to give me more money. I'm just seeking God. I'm doing what God tells me to do. I'm resting in Him, believing that whatever God wants me to do, He's already made the provision for it. And I'm not trying to manipulate God or to get Him to do something. I'm just resting in Him. And this is what I'm trying to say. People have used this verse to, you know, try and confess they're going to win the lottery, to try and get somebody else as their mate, trying to do things that God never provided in the atonement of the Lord Jesus. Faith doesn't make God do one single thing. Faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. Again, that has transformed my life. It has totally, totally changed my life. Do you know, in my personal life, we, uh, in 2009, I bought this property in Woodland Park, Colorado to expand our Bible school. I started our Bible school in 1994. But in 2009, we were at a critical place. We were either going to have to limit enrollment, we were going to have to go buy another building and start separating the different... Uh, years of our Bible college into different segments or we needed to get a new place and consolidate everything. Long story, but the Lord led us to buy this property. It was a, it was a blessing of God. It was just awesome. And we started construction in 2012 on a uh, uh, campus up there. And God has just impressed on my heart that this is going to be a first class uh, Bible college. It's going to be comparable to a university. We're going to have everything that a university has. And we've already grown to over 6,000 people in our Bible college worldwide. We have about 700, just under 800 at our main campus in Woodland Park. But we are building it. And so I, I built that first building. We moved in January of 2014. I spent $32 million on acquiring the property building the building, all of the infrastructure, you know, the, the gas and the uh, water and the sewage and all of the roads and all of the infrastructure. I spent $32 million on that first building, paid cash for it, debt free. And then in the summer of 2014, we began construction on phase two, our auditorium. It's now about uh, probably 80% or more through. We've spent around $40 million on that probably 36 to 38 million, something like that. So altogether, we've spent over $70 million in four and a half years debt-free. And did you know, here's my point in saying all of this. I have not 
use this verse or other verses to say, in the name of Jesus, Father, this is what I want. I'm confessing and I'm believing and I'm trying to make it come to pass. But no, I'm just worshiping the Lord. I'm resting in the Lord. I'm enjoying my relationship with God. And I'm just seeking Him. And He tells me to do these things. And I'm not trying to get God to do something. I'm just responding to Him. He told me He wants to build a Bible college. It's going to last long beyond my lifetime. And it's going to be providing the gospel and reaching people around the world. It's already happening. I mean, we are already seeing awesome things happen. We've got over 14 offices now in other countries. I'm not saying any of these things to promote me or to talk about that there's something special about me. I'm trying to illustrate that I am not trying to get God to do anything. I'm just worshiping God. God is telling me what He wants me to do. And I am responding to Him. I'm not trying to get Him to respond to me. And because of that, I wish I had better words to explain this. I'm doing the very best I possibly can. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I sleep good at night. I'm not stressed out. I'm not worried. I'm not bothered. I'm not anxious about stuff because I am not trying to use my faith to get God to do anything. I'm using my faith just to respond to Him. And I really believe that this is what He wants done and all of the pressure is on Him. It's not on me. I am not under pressure. You know, the last time I figured, I, f I forget now what it is, but I have to have four or $5,000 every hour of every day, 24-7, 365 days a year. And you know, that if you were to think that somehow or another, I have to do this, man, that would be pressure on you. That is a lot of money. And yet, I don't have any pressure on me. I actually have less pressure on me than 20 or 30 years ago when our income was much less because I've grown in, I, in my understanding and things like this. And I'm trying to convey that I am not trying to get God to do anything. I don't spend time praying about money and, Oh God, please give me money. Oh God, please help me to do this. We got some other deals going right now that you know may or may not come to pass, but it could be another you know, multiple, multiple million dollar thing that I'm dealing with. And I am not asking God, oh God, please do this. I'm just saying, Father, I, I believe this is what you want. So how do you want me to respond? What do you want me to do? And at the moment, all I can hear is that you just need to rest and trust me and I'm just trusting God and God's supplying my needs. You know, this isn't only in finances or in healing uh, I remember when I first got turned on to the Lord, I tried to get God to send revival. I was taught that God responded to us and that revival was a product that if we would pray and not just one person, but get hundreds of people or thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people to pray, we could manipulate God. We could motivate God. We, in a sense, could twist His arm and just ring revival. We had to pray. Some of you are going to find this hard to believe. But honestly, I used to have these all-night prayer meetings. They never went all night because people would be gone by 11 or 12. But we tried to have all-night prayer meetings where we were going to just lay hold of God and not let go until God came through. And I remember screaming and crying and praying for Arlington, Texas. That's where I grew up. And I was praying, Oh God, 
Send revival. Oh, God, touch these people. And I actually had this come out of my mouth. I said, I was just crying. I said, oh, God, if you love the people in Arlington, Texas, half as much as I love them, we would have revival. And as soon as I said that, I realized something was wrong with the way I was thinking. And I got to thinking about that, and the Lord spoke to me, and He said, Andrew, I love the people in Arlington many, many times more than you do. But see, I was thinking that God was up there with His arms folded like this, saying, you aren't holy enough, you hadn't cried enough, you hadn't prayed enough, you hadn't interceded, you don't have enough people, do more, do more, do more, and when you finally get to this point, then I will move. That was totally, totally, totally wrong. It never worked for me and it won't work for you. What we really got to do is recognize that God desires revival more than we desired. And He has placed revival on the inside of every one of us. He's placed raising from the dead power. And all you got to do instead of begging Him, Oh God, pour out your power, is go to the Word, find out what He's already done. Find out the power that you've got. Renew your mind. Start walking in this. And you go out and you release that power. See somebody raised from the dead and you'll have all the revival that you can handle. I can guarantee you, you go out and start speaking the Word of God and things that you are saying are coming to pass and miracles happen, lives are being changed. You will have all of the revival that you can handle. It's not up to God whether or not revival comes. He's already done everything and placed His power on the inside of us and it's up to us to find out what we have, respond to it, start walking in the love and in the power and the authority of God. And revival comes through us. Revival isn't up to God. Revival's up to us. These signs will follow them that believe. We don't pray and let God pour out signs and then we follow them. They follow us. You've got to go out and start releasing the power of God. I tell you, this is powerful. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.